All right, we're going to get started. I want to invite you to <clears throat> come back to your seats. Sorry to break up the conversation. Please continue that afterwards. We love that. We love that that happens here. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if you're a guest, especially with us, once again, we're glad that you're here. We're honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning um, with us. And I know here in the next, oh, 15 minutes or so, there's, there's an announcement being made on the interwebs about things that affect us here locally. So just, I'm going to just lay that out there. I'll give you a five-second little grace thing if you need to bounce your eyes down about to see what happened. And then I just want to acknowledge that because I know there's probably some, like, should I pay attention to him or should I be looking at my phone? If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask the person next to you. Um, so today, we are continuing our series. Um, the book. Of, uh, yeah, I just told you to have the conversation. Now you're just, so. Well, I'll give it. It's my fault. My fault. Um, second week um, in our Advent series. We're going through the book of Isaiah, looking at four different chapters in these four uh, consecutive weeks uh, to really um, highlight um, the Advent season. And today, the text is as Isaiah chapter 10, starting in verse 33, and then the first last two uh, verses, uh, just to give some context, and then into verse, uh, chapter 11. Chapter 10, verse Verse 33, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows, bows with terrifying power. The great, the great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Chapter 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall, be, shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young child shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. There shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, and Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you um, <clears throat> during this time of year where there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of singing and a lot of songs that we can trust, that we can trust your word. We can trust that you've spoken in your word and that um, we can always go back to your word to hear your voice and to, to know uh, really the, the reason why we set aside this time of year to focus more intently on your son. So I pray today as we look at your word and we sing your word and, we, and we've been praying your word, I, I pray that you would change us we change our minds and our hearts and change the way we live when we leave this place. 
It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Advent. We talked about it last week, but Advent simply means arrival. It means arrival. Um, and when we observe Advent during this time of year, we're really doing two things. We're celebrating and we're waiting. We're celebrating or remembering and waiting. Uh, we remember what God has done in Jesus Christ. Right? Born of a virgin, born as a baby like all of us were born. And living um, a, a perfect life and dying a horrible death and rising from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, and death. We remember that because it's important. That is what saves us. That is what reconciles us to God as followers of Jesus who have professed faith in him and have been given grace and mercy by him. But I, I, I worry sometimes that that is the primary focus of Advent. And that's okay, but I think there's another half that we can't forget, and that is the waiting. We have to put ourselves in this position of waiting. And we wait for uh, Jesus to come again, the second advent. Not as a baby, it'll come a second time. He'll come as a king, a king riding a war horse. And Revelation says, has this imagery where there's a sword coming out of his mouth when he's riding this horse. He's coming back as a victorious king to judge the living and the dead, to execute justice and to make things right once and for all, to crush sin and Satan once and for all. And set up the new heavens and the new earth. And that, that is what is coming. That is what we wait for as followers of Jesus. That's what we wait for. But we all know that waiting is really, really hard. Waiting's hard, especially for things that are good. And things that you're longing for and wanting to, to happen. Waiting is hard. So we remember, but we also wait. There's a tension that we find ourselves. Something's already happened, but it's not finished yet completely. Last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9. There was this birth announcement for to us a son is born, for to us a child is born. And we had those four statements about Jesus. And this morning, we're looking at another birth, birth announcement. It's chapter 11, though. Another birth announcement, two chapters later in Isaiah. And Isaiah, this time, this birth announcement, he takes a little bit of a different angle, focusing really on peace, what this idea of peace looks like and how Jesus is the one to bring peace. Now, peace is a word that... Um, I think in our English language is sometimes limited when we say peace. Most times we immediately go to absence of war, absence of conflict. But the positive side of peace is actually um, the way things ought to be. Like it's the way things were intended to be. And the, the, the Hebrew word for this is shalom. There's a shalom. There's this, it's, it's, it's as things as they were intended to be. And we see this best in Genesis 1 and 2 in the scriptures. There was never another time in the world ever, other than Genesis 1 and 2, when God first created uh, the, the, the heavens and the earth and, and life where things were as, it sh as they should be. Things were great. Things were wonderful. This is when peace um, has happened on our earth. It'll happen again, but right now we don't find ourselves in that situation. So we long and we wait for things to be made right. Now, one of our traditions as a family, Nicole and I, during this season, um, is to watch the movie Christmas Vacation. Christmas Vacation. And as foolish as this movie is, and as funny as it is, it actually gives us a really good picture of this idea of a person trying to find peace. You have Clark W. Griswold, who wants nothing more than at this Christmas to go perfectly. He wants things to go right. He wants things to be ideal, and he's, you could tell he's, he's ramped up for it from the beginning of the movie when he go, goes and picks out this obnoxious tree, then he comes home and decorates his house in an obnoxious amount of lights, 
And then he makes sure the kids have toys and presents. And, and what's the big one, right? The bonus, right? Like he, he has to have that Christmas bonus because that's what he's going to uh, put in a pool with in his house. So this is his picture of the perfect Christmas. But all throughout the movie, really the whole movie is this, this idea of a perfect, peaceful Christmas getting thwarted left and right. Right? Like things keep coming in the way of Clark W. Griswold getting his perfect Christmas. And we see him act the fool when this happens, right? When his peace is threatened, when things aren't going the way he wants to, he becomes uh, a fool, right? Like from, from him uh, punting Santa Claus across the lawn when he can't get his lights to work. Or getting frustrated about the tree, his tree getting burned down inside of his house and going in and taking out a tree in his, from his yard and bringing it inside with a chainsaw. Or he continues to get frustrated by Todd and Margot next door. Um, I don't know Margot next door because of their consistent annoying him. Um, and, and then you have Eddie, right? Uncle Eddie and his boss. Like they're all getting in the way of his perfect Christmas and how he wants just peace to happen. I think this gives us a really good example. And if you, I encourage you to watch it. Kids, no. Adults, yes. I encourage you to watch it. Um, as you're watching, you go, I just want you to watch Clark W. Griswold and how he's struggling for peace and he's just hoping that the Christmas gives him what he is longing for. And I think this is the case with all of us. When we don't get peace or our peace is threatened or things aren't the way they're supposed to be, um, something happens on the inside. We become... Um, Mean, angry, selfish, because we, we all desire peace. This is common for all humans. We desire peace. This is foundational to what it is to be a human. So let's go into the text, Isaiah 10, uh, verse 33 here, 33 and 34. Uh, God says, through the prophet Isaiah, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Now, this is really vivid imagery, and we need to make sure we understand this before we move into chapter 11. Okay, this idea of a tree, big trees in a forest is huge to understand this passage. Part, um, one of the biggest forests in the world happened to be in uh, Lebanon. And if you've read the scripture, especially the Old Testament, you'll hear cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon. At this time period, there was a, a massive forest in Lebanon. And for people in this region, they, that was one of the, the giant geographical markers that just showed the power of earth. And you had these huge trees. Um, not, similar to if, if you've been to California, probably not quite as big as the giant redwoods and sequoias in California. But this is what these trees were like. So God uses this imagery that was really familiar to the people to say, this is what it's going to be like. Now, God's not really going to cut down this forest, but he's taking that forest to represent, for them at least, God's people, the Assyrian army. The Assyrian army, like we talked about last week, was on their doorstep. They were about to come in and wipe out God's people. For sure, conquer them and oppress them, but potentially wipe them out if they decide to fight, fought back. This is what the God's people are facing. So God's sending this word through Isaiah to comfort them, to say, here's what eventually will happen to the Assyrian army. They will be cut down. They will be, they, they will be lopped off. They will be cut down to the stump. The mighty will fall. So to, to God's people, this was the Assyrian army. But when we read this, we should read it, it, it through the context of Jesus the Messiah and read it as um, our sin. 
the brokenness in the world. Anything and everything that comes in the way of us experiencing peace and shalom, that is what this forest that God is going to take down should, should illustrate, should, 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 should come hit home for us. Human sin, abuse of power, abuse of authorities, bullying, brokenness, sin, this massive thing that's just destroying and wrecking havoc in, in our own souls and in, on all the earth, it will be destroyed, it will be brought down to nothing as a giant tree is chopped down and laid to waste with just a stump left. This is what God is going to do to the Assyrians eventually, but also to sin and Satan and the powers of this earth. And so he, he's ramping up here. And then in verse one of chapter 11, here's the announcement. Here's the birth announcement, right? Here's the light dawning. Number uh, verse one, there, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Okay, so he's, he's imagining this forest, right? And he, he wants us to go there. This forest and the trees have been cut down. This massive forest used to have thousands of trees where he couldn't even see through it. Just majestic, nothing, flattened, just stumps. And then that's the world, right? And then out of one of these little stumps, a little grass, a little uh, green blade of, of grass that's going to become a tree, a shoot, happens and he says it bears fruit and he says this shoot is from jesse and so picture this picture this shoot this green grass this ray of hope coming out of this decimated forest and this shoot represents hope for the world he's saying light's coming hope is coming out of this wreckage of the world that that is, that is currently in place but also that i will make it after i destroy sin a shoot will happen so why, why this shoot and, and why, why this Jesse analogy here? Well, what the, the point God's trying to make here is something very seemingly so small, like a shoot coming out of decimated forest of giant cedars. That shoot, that, that little um, start of a tree is going to change the world. And Jesus, the king, the Messiah, coming in the form of a baby the way he did, not on, a, not on a war horse to begin with, which is how most kings would have come in and conquered, but deciding to give up everything and come as a baby and live, live lives that we've all lived in the context that we live in, in this broken world. This is the way Jesus comes into our world. And so he goes back to Jesse here, not King David. He does that in other parts. He goes all the way back to David's father. Jesse, who was, who was kind of just an average guy. If you remember the story, he's just an average guy, and God happens um, to want to, to anoint David as king, and that's why he shows up at Jesse's door. Not because Jesse had this amazing family or he was something, but he is in the line of Jesus now. He's, a, he's in the bloodline of Jesus. So uh, God, through the prophet Isaiah, strategically didn't, didn't attach the shoot to David, because David's a king. No, he wants to go all the way back to the normal guy. Just Jesse. He's just a shoot of Jesse. And yet, this, this baby, this person would become the Messiah. Once again, God is using the, the small things. It's upside down. It's not changing the world the way we would have changed the world. You know, I, I'm happy for Kanye and his, and his conversion. And I think he'll do a lot of good in his corner of the universe. But honestly, like, Kanye is not the hope of Christianity in our country. He's not, Christianity doesn't spread like wildfire because somebody famous believes and now everybody gets to believe. That is not the way that is done in the scriptures. We don't see that happening. 
God takes the, the small things of the world to conquer the strong. He takes the foolishness of the world to overcome the wise. This is the way God works. And so what God is trying to give us an image of is from this desolated forest, there's a shoot. There's hope. And it's coming from Jesse, and it's Jesus, okay? So let's look at uh, verse 2 now. This is talking more about who this Messiah is going to be. This is the Messiah we wait for, the Messiah that, that we know, that we've heard in the gospel, but also the one who is to come. Verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord, this is the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He, is, he has this anointing, the Messiah will. And we see this when Jesus comes out of the water at his baptism, the spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. And God says, this is my son who I'm proud of. Jesus will be anointed and, he, and he's anointed to be the perfect king. He has the Holy Spirit. He has all of these things. The perfect king, Jesus has all of those qualities. Verse three, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, not in power, not in uh, selfishness. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide to speak by what his ears hear, like earthly judges do. Um, he's a judge that judges rightly all the time. And we can trust that he's going to judge rightly because he puts himself under the authority of God the Father. So he delights in God's words. And if he's a judge ruling over all the earth, he is still one under authority. We can trust him. He's a good judge. Verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And we know from the Sermon on the Mount that, that, that the meek will inherit the earth. And we, when, when he says, Isaiah says, judge the poor, um, that's not a bad thing. The, 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 with the poor and the marginalized, the one thing that oftentimes they struggle with in a society is they don't get justice. They don't get an equal voice. And so he's actually going to judge the poor. And he says that because he's going to give the poor what they deserve. He's going to give the poor a voice. He's going to treat others, everybody equally as it relates to justice. When most societies from the history of the earth, the poor have been the marginalized. The meek have been the marginalized. But it is not that way in the kingdom of God. And we saw that in the Sermon on the Mount that we just went through as a church. Um, but again, it's highlighted here. His justice is aimed at the poor and the meek, and he wants to make sure they are taken care of and have a voice. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Think of a belt. The belt is in the center part of a body. It's oftentimes something you can see as someone's approaching. So it's in the center of his body. You can see it as approaching. These are, these are qualities that represent King Jesus. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness. Righteousness just meaning perfect holiness. He always does what is right all the time perfectly. Faithfulness, he always shows up. You can count on him like you can't any human being. We can all let each other down. But he is the one you can count on all the time. And we can trust him because of these things. This is, what, uh, this is why Isaiah is laying these things out. We can trust him. He knows us and we can trust him. And when we don't trust him, what we're saying is, is there's something lacking in him. And with that, that, we should think about that. When we don't trust God in an area, what we're saying is he is not trustworthy. And that's just not true. It's not true when we read the scripture. So the problem is with us and our lack of trust. We can trust him. 
Another reason why we can trust him is how he, he came into this, this world, right? Had all the power in the world. He was a king, could have ruled however he wanted to, but yet he incarnated himself and was born like any other human being was born. He was dependent upon his mom and dad just like any other human being was. Went through the awkward teenage years like all of us go through. Had a job, like a, like a normal job. He was a carpenter. And that's all before he came on the scene. And then Philippians tells us that he, he, he was the lowliest of the low. He was a king, but yet he made himself a servant. He became nothing so that he could glorify and honor God, but also reconcile us back to the Father through grace and mercy. Not just suffering a death, but a death on the cross. This king, the one who had everything, all majesty, all authority, had everything, could have taken power any way he wanted to, lays it down for the sake of the glory of God and for sinners like you and me. This is the king. This is Jesus. This is why we can trust him. He laid down everything to come to earth and do what he did. And in the story of, in this, this place where in Isaiah that we're reading, it is really bad for God's people. And we need to sit in this a little bit. We don't, we don't need to move on through the difficulty in this passage. As they're hearing these words from Isaiah, they're about to get crushed by the Assyrians. It is not good. Um, they haven't been listening to God. They have, they've been going their own way. They've been in rebellion. If you read up to this time in Isaiah, they have not been listening to God. They look like all the nations around them and how they're living and what God's doing. And he'll do the same thing to us. He just kind of lets them go their own way. Kind of takes his hands off of them says, okay, go, go figure that out. You go see where that'll lead you. See if that will lead you to freedom and joy and hope and peace. Go try that. We'll take my protection off, you guys. This, the Assyrians are coming through, ravaging nations, and I, I'm just going to let them keep going right through Israel, right? And to, just to see if he can wake them up. They look like all the, they, they weren't deserving of any grace and mercy. But chapter 11 here, God is going to break into their world whether they like it or not. Whether they, they're, they're honorable, whether they're obedient, God is deciding one day enough is enough. My light's going to come in, I'm going to provide a savior, and I'm going to redeem you. He's telling his people that in Isaiah. And he would tell us that as well. See, he made a covenant with his people all the way back in Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 and all throughout the Old Testament. You see these covenants. I love you. You're my people. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm always going to come for you. I'm always going to, I'm, I'm going to rescue you eternally. But sometimes if you go your own way, I'm going to let you go. That's his discipline on his people. And that's what is about to happen. But he's saying, wait a minute. I'm coming though. I'm coming. I'm going to return. So where we sit as followers of Jesus, the, 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 the penalty of our sin has been taken care of. Now, we're struggling right now with the power of sin in our lives. That's called sanctification, big theological world. How we're growing up to look more like Jesus. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us grow and to look more like Jesus. That's where we find ourselves in this gospel narrative. And eventually, we have the, the, the penalty of sin's been removed, the power of sin's being, being slowly removed from our lives as we, get, as we grow up as Christians. And eventually in the future, the presence of sin will be crushed. Not right now. We, we see that all around us. The, present of, the presence of sin is alive and well. But one day, that's what we wait for. Wait for sin to be crushed for forever, for all eternity. 
So that's who Jesus is. Now let's quickly look at the rest of these verses, and he's going to give us a picture of what this peace is going to look like. And, and we need to imagine this, right? This, this helps us wait. Listen to this, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Right? Those are enemies. All throughout the scriptures, the wolf and the lamb, are, they are not friends, right? Wolf, wolves devour lambs. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Again, not normal. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them, leading the lion. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child, this is crazy, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, probably a one or two-year-old, and the weaned child, probably a, a pre-K or toddler, shall put his hand on the adder's den, poisonous snake's den. Verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is where it's all heading. This is what true shalom and peace looks like on earth, and this is where it's all heading. This is not some made-up thing that Christians do. And so if, if you're, not, you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're a Christian and, and you maybe have, have, have grown up with some weird beliefs regarding the second coming of Jesus, and if this is going to be weird, it just seems like it's a big fiction book, like, like it's real. We don't know all the, how it's going to happen, but what we do know, we don't know it will happen. It is going, it's going to be real events, it's going to be a real battle, and this is what is going to happen. It's not made up. This is not a fairy tale in the scriptures. It is going to happen. And the, what, what is just described here, humanity could never uh, think this up or ne could never accomplish this. No scientific breakthrough could make these, these two animals, these two arch enemies get along. No human effort, no political agenda, no self-help guru, no breakthroughs could ever create this scene. It is purely an act of God in the name of Jesus, King Jesus. Now, do we believe this is going to happen, though? Like, that, that, that's at the heart of trust and the heart of waiting, waiting with expectant hope. Do we believe this is where this thing's all headed? And all, all, that's, all, God's, all Jesus is waiting for to come back is that go command from the Father. When God says go, Jesus is coming. We don't know the time or the place, but it will happen, and we wait. Look at verse 10 and 11. In that day, the root of, oh, one other thing, too, I'll say on verse 6 through 9, um, I think it's interesting. I think this was, this was something hit me this week. I don't want to miss it, but the child here. You know, remember Genesis 3, right? We see this, the snake is the representative of, of, of Satan there, and he's the one that tempts Adam and Eve, causes sin to come into the world through their disobedience, and now the child here, someone who's even more um, innocent than Adam and Eve, is the one actually playing with the snake. Like God is, is taming the snakes to, so much that a one or two-year-old could go up and hang out with a cobra and there'd be no worries. I mean, if you're a parent, that is a terrifying image, but that's the, the child, the snake coming out of Genesis 3 in this representation. Jesus coming in as a child and Isaiah giving this picture as a child playing with the snake, I think it's all really uh, cool how the, the, the scriptures tie this together. And I will say this, side note, but if you're um, one of those people you're wondering, um, is our animals going to be in heaven? Is, is, is little, is little um, Scooby your old dog, um, is he going to be in heaven? Um, here's the deal. Like, I do think animals are going to be in heaven. Like, I think this is a good uh, defense of that. Noah's Ark, I think animals are going to be in heaven. 
Are specific animals going to be in heaven? I don't think you can find that in Scripture. But I do think this is a picture of what heaven's going to be like, right? There are going to be animals and such in heaven, okay? So and that may have been um, off cue there, but th- this has honestly given uh, me some comfort when I've had to say goodbye to, to pets. Um, sorry, tangent. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant. This is the, the, when he comes back again. The remains of his people from Assyria, Egypt, Pathos, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, from the coastlands to the sea. The whole earth, basically. The whole earth will be home of the new heavens and the new earth for King Jesus. All of it. This is what that passage is saying, all of it. And it's interesting, in verse 10, we see he brings up the root of Jesse again. In verse 1, the root of Jesse referred to um, the, hu- the human, the humanity side of Jesus. And in verse 10 here, he's talking about the deity, the God side of Jesus. And so you have here Isaiah trying to make the point that you have he's fully human and fully God. At the same time, this is Jesus, and this is what Isaiah is trying to do. He's bookending this phrase, the root of Jesse, together so that we would understand that. And he has shown us in the resurrection a picture of what humanity is going to look like. Right? When he came back from the dead, he was the first fruits of that. This is a picture of what we, uh, what it'll be like when we, um, as followers of Jesus, are brought back in that day and time as well. And so on earth, in some sense, we're, we're, we're kind of one commentator, so we're like the model home, right? On earth, as we stay on earth, we're the model home. As you, when you go through a neighborhood, you're wondering about homes in the neighborhood, you go in and check it out. That's us, right? We're a picture. We're a small glimpse of the Holy Spirit inside of us of what it might look like one day when Jesus returns and we um, rise with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, one, um, Pastor Ray Ortland, who um, is a part of our network in Acts 29, he's also a scholar on the book of Isaiah, um, he, he gave this really awesome illustration of what it's like to experience what we're living in now. Um, in um, 1814, during the, world of 18, the War of 1812, um, in 1814, the, a man by the name of Francis Scott Key, um, if you recognize that name, he's the one who wrote... Um, the Star Spangled Banner, the lyrics for it. And he got, if you don't know the story, he got the inspiration for that while he was a, basically a prisoner on a boat off the coast um, of the United States. And he got the inspiration from that as he was watching the coastland of the United States as the British bombed Fort McHenry. That's where he was off. He was on a British boat. And he was watching them just bomb it. Well, what he saw were American flags planted there. And he knew he was, he was a prisoner he wasn't experienced perfectly peace in that moment, but he, he saw his homeland. He saw the flag there planted. Even though bombs were exploding all around him, he knew, okay, we're good. The flag is planted. The country's going to make it. We're going to be fine. And Ray Ortland says that this is how, kind of how we feel now. Like we feel like things aren't always right. We don't have that shalom. We fight for it. Our circumstances are bad oftentimes in our life. But we can look to the future and know that Jesus has already planted his flag. That flag is planted. He hasn't come back. He hasn't, he hasn't come back on that horse yet to make all things right. But the end of Revelation tells us he will come back. Right now, we can have peace through the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying we can't. We can have peace internally through the Holy Spirit. We can have that. And we should long for that and fight for that. But our circumstances, the world around us, will never have complete peace until Jesus comes back to rule 
and to reign. So we're left with this, this tension, right? This tension of, I have the Holy Spirit. I want him to, 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 to help me with inner peace, but everything around us just seems chaotic. Seems chaotic. So here's a question as I start to close. What would your inner life look like if there was complete peace? If you had complete shalom, like everything was as it should be inside of you, what would that look like? If you don't ask yourself that question, you should. Because one of the fruits of the Spirit that we have as followers of Jesus is peace. Like that's something we should long for. That's something we should even expect to some degree and, and live with. Um, he, he offers us peace, right? As followers, he offers us peace. We have the Holy Spirit, but I think we have to create some space. We have to create some rhythms. We have to spend time with him. We have to spend some time carving out time to pray with him and be with him, and do some of those things that we mentioned last week. The Christian life is a set of beliefs and teachings, but it's also a way of life. It's a way of living. And if we're going to live the way of Jesus, that's a way of peace. But if we're going to have that peace, we have to carve out time to actually spend time thinking about the things we've talked about today, thinking about his character, his righteousness, his faithfulness, what he's done for us in the gospel. And you're not, that's not going to happen automatically, especially in the world we live in. So my, my, my kind of two things I want to close with, and this is, this is homework, like I kind of gave you last week. I want you to, to, to practice these things because this is a way of life. Number one, carve out some time. Create some rhythm. Find some time to rest. Calm down and think about, ask yourself that question, what would my life look like inside, not circumstantially, but inside, if I had true shalom? And pray that God would help you live that out and find that. And, and, and through his word and his truth and his gospel would bring you to that place. And we should pray about that and ask God to, to work that in us. We need to be people who keep seeking and keep asking and keep searching and keep connecting to the local church and keep being around other brothers and sisters who can, who can preach the good news to us and encourage us with the good news. Um, and the second thing is, um, question really, so create some time and space to think about these things, peace, in your own life this week. Number two, are you an agent of peace or are you an agent of conflict or are you just a bystander and kind of let things happen the way they are? And I think if we're, if we're uh, followers of Jesus, it's clear we've been sent out as uh, ministers of reconciliation. Another way to say it is ministers of peace, right? We should be agents of peace with the Holy Spirit doing things inside of us to be a peaceful presence wherever we go. And that could be anywhere. That could even be online where things are just a mess, and, and, you know, on Facebook and Twitter and all these things. We're an agent of peace there. We're an agent of peace in our own life. So this week, the question is, how can you be an agent of peace? Not someone who's just, hey, I just want to avoid conflict and not mess with it, but how do you move into situations in a gentle, loving way, like Jesus did, humbly, humbly, and be an agent of peace? Because if we found peace, if we have that inner peace, if we're creating time to be a person that, that has a peaceful presence about them, we should also be people who are agents of peace. And in our, in our uh, mission statement, we, uh, we want to seek gospel saturation. And if you look at uh, verse 9 here that we just read, this is... This is really the same thing. Uh, verse 9 here, it says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover, cover the sea. That's not just for the church. That's the whole earth. What is our role as the church? To be the agents of peace. 
to see the, the, the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea by the gospel and gospel saturation. This is what we pray for as a church. We want to be people who are agents of peace wherever we go. Find time to spend with him, create some space, and let's be agents of peace and reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. And I, I pray that this isn't just another uh, Christmas service for us in this room, especially those of us who call ourselves Christians. I pray that you would use your word in this time of year and this idea of waiting, that we still have much to wait for, much to long for, to pray about, to ask God to come and to move. I, I pray that in this, this season where we highlight this idea of waiting, I pray that you would help us be patient, help us wait with peace and hopeful expectation and not trying to take things and not trying to race our way through life and not trying to be uh, trying to just fit everything in and we just run ourselves ragged, that I pray that we would create some space in the next few weeks to think about you and your son and the spirit and the peace that you've already brought us in your son and Jesus, the reconciliation that we've experienced with you, but also the peace that awaits us someday in the future where you'll, where, where you'll return and make everything right. No more tears, no more suffering, no more pain, no more saying goodbye to loved ones. You'll be in peace. We so desperately want to see that and experience that. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.